Hello and welcome to The Rabbit Hole, the definitive developer's podcast, living large in New York. I'm your host, Michael Nunez, our co-host today, David Anderson, and our producer, William Jeffries. And today we'll be talking about metrics as incentives. And when they can go horribly wrong. Or horribly right. I don't know. <laughs> That's even the thing. <laughs> In either case, maybe horrible. But Yeah. As software engineers, we're surrounded by data. And often that data can turn into different sources of information that then your product, project manager, VP of engineering, CTO, use that information and then goes on with it. But we'll use other different points and pieces of metrics throughout our conversation today. Yeah. So a personal metric that has recently popped up in my life as an incentive is that in the state of New Jersey, the eligibility for the COVID vaccine is open to a number of medical conditions that are complications for the disease, which is great. Equitable vaccine access for people who need it is wonderful. One of those in New Jersey to some controversy is the fact that like your BMI is tied to your eligibility. So if you're overweight with a BMI of 25, which is a weird metric as it is, like we don't have to get into like the definition of what BMI is. I don't know what it is. William probably knows what it is. Maybe he'll tell us. But I'm like, I'm not BMI 25. I'm 24. I thought about it and I'm like, wait, I haven't like weighed myself since like six months. I've made so many bad decisions of what I've eaten in my life. And I just had Wendy's chicken sandwich, you know, for lunch and not exercising. So I stepped on the scale and I measured. I'm like, oh, I'm I'm 25. I broke that thing. (laughs) So I'm like, is this real? Like, <laughs> is it happening? Is it like Does the Willy count? Wonka golden ticket? Like you thought you now has the ability to get the vaccine? You're 25, bro. But I was like, I don't think I scientifically weighed myself. I had just eaten a huge amount of food, so like I don't think it fully counted. But now I'm like, I'm pretty close. Like maybe. <laughs> I'm like, this is like a great tie-in for the fast food chains, you know. <laughs> exactly wendy's got you the vaccine bro (laughs) just eat your way to the front of the line like pac-man exactly i mean i think yeah you mentioned before that new york is at the number is 30 that's too high of a bar man (laughs) challenge accepted bro nobody don't do it we're gonna go get a ton of of cheese of like like canned cheese nacho cheese just eat it with my hands every day clogged clogged arteries and everything it's happening i need this vaccine i mean i mean everybody's been locked you know, at home, being not so kind to oneself. So I imagine that this is probably Jersey's way of saying, we're sorry we kept you locked in. Get the vaccine a little earlier. (laughs) Right, yeah. But that New York 30, mm, I mean, I don't know. I'm no scientist, but I'm sure there are specific reasons. I mean, if you're overweight, then you're more at risk of COVID doing damage, which is why they want you to go and get the vaccine if you're overweight. But I might have to eat a jar of mayonnaise and then hopefully I gain all the weight. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like if that metric is changing your behavior, which I feel like it kind of did this week, because although like I weighed myself later and I'm not, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get that burrito for lunch. (laughs) I mean, I already made up my mind. I'm not doing that. I like want to change my behavior and like exercise. But I'm like, if I eat a burrito, then I could get a vaccine. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but it's awful. Morally gray. As you mentioned, it can influence fast food to encourage people to eat it so that they get just above that number necessary in their state to get the vaccine. Yeah. And like in our day to day lives as developers, sometimes test coverage is that burrito that you eat <laughs> to get yourself above the line. Yes. You stay at your desk and making sure that test coverage goes above that number necessary for your team. But then like you can't move. Like you're just you're so bloated with test coverage that you can't like refactor anymore. You've poured it with cement. What's the magic number? Because I like if people say often you got to go for that 100 P, right? 100 percent. But is that really possible? Are you testing every file in your code base? I mean, you, is that really possible? I don't know. But I think I'll ask everyone in the room, in the Zoom room, if you will. What were some tests coverage set up on the clients that you've been on that worked well with y'all? Was the number like below anything below 80 is not worth it? Like stop the build. Do y'all have a number in mind? I've seen builds break at 70% or at 80% or at 90%. I've never seen anybody try to break a build at under 100%. I think I see a lot of places that do not break the build at all, no matter how low the test coverage is. Yes. I've seen some places where like they start with a very low percentage and like as an incentive to increase the test coverage, they will fail your PR if the test coverage goes down. If the diff of coverage between master and your branch is lower, then they're like, we got a problem here. Yeah. I was going to say that's the one that I've seen that worked very well for me. It's like, oh, if the incentivized testing, maybe it was like a code base that was a little bit older that they introduced testing, so they want to increase it. It was like anything under 2% of what is different from master will stop the build. And I thought that's like a very great way to ensure that you continue to add coverage to your code base without like this number, this 70%, 80 or 90. Just like don't go under the two, bro, that we've already had. So it doesn't matter what number you start is as long as what you are merging into master. Yeah. I feel like when you reach a certain point, you probably want to turn that off because you don't want to keep going through the roof because you might end up with like tests that are low value and cover every fiddly boolean case that will make it more challenging to refactor down the line. I'm fine with people wanting to test edge cases. My concern is always when people are optimizing to hit a code coverage number and not to write tests that are actually going to catch bugs. And that's the thing that I see where the real issue is if somebody passes in like a null or some other data type or, you know, it's like a function that accepts many different data types and they test the one that's really easy to test and will hit all the lines of code and not the data types that are more likely to cause problems. Right, because that incentivized the developer to write tests for the sake of the increase of the test coverage number, but not the quality of the code and ensuring that things aren't breaking properly. Right, and like being thoughtful about the purpose of the test. Yeah, the test coverage number just tells you how many lines were executed. What percentage of the lines in the file got executed? That's a pretty ham-handed way of looking at whether or not the test would break if you introduced a bug. 
right? So make sure you're writing those tests for the right reasons, not just for those numbers for it to go up, right? You want to write tests for the sake of clean code and being able to refactor safely. That is the most difficult thing to measure, that particular part. We leave it up to the engineers to make sure that they're doing the right thing. They're testing, not for them numbers, for them gains, but testing for the code. Have you ever had a manager that like tried to measure your productivity as a developer? Yes. Yeah, definitely. That's always like really, really cheap way to like kind of know how much work someone is doing. Looking at GitHub to see how many commits you made or how many additions or removals of the code you have. And I find that just like micromanaging, but like in the digital age, if that makes sense. It's not like just checking up on you on task, but more looking at what you're coding or producing. Right. And I guess we talked with some folks earlier about remote work in like this kind of age where there's an increased interest from some types of management in software that measures your engagement with different tasks and like can give them a report when you're on the internet or something like that. And that's like a separate, I guess, concern entirely in its own Orwellian sense. Is measuring commits like a good measure of productivity or lines of code? What are you really measuring with that? Well, I think it's more about their interaction with the code base. It's not always one-to-one like, oh, Bobby, who introduced more lines of code is probably the person who's doing more of the work, right? Like you could probably get a, what is it? Like a yarn.lock file. If you're like the first person to introduce that bad boy and like that had so (laughs) many lines of code, I don't think that that would be the metric. Like you can throw it off with those kind of commits that happen. So I don't know if commits or lines of code can do that. This is a question for y'all. Like if you squash commits, does that actually reduces the amount of commits you've made in a report or does it still count? I imagine that it wouldn't because it's squashed. It's not in the history no more. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that that would count against you. I had a manager who said he felt like there are two ways of measuring performance. There's the way you would measure a runner and the way that you would measure a baseball player. And managers, particularly who come from the business side and are used to sales, they try and measure you like a runner. And they're like, well, we measure our salespeople based on how many sales they did. So let's measure our coders by how many lines of code that they write. That is very simplistic and leads to some just terrible incentives. Like, (laughs) let's just commit a bunch of assets to version control. And then that way we'll get credit for a lot of lines of code. Mm-hmm. And it's like very, very easy to break. And there's baseball players, right? And baseball players, you can't just measure with a single metric. And so a baseball card is going to have a bunch of stats on it. And his view was that engineers were like baseball players. If you looked at any one metric, it would throw you off. But if you looked at a whole suite of metrics, then it could give you a sense of whether this is a good player or a bad player. It may not tell you if this is a world champion, but mm-hmm. it will at least get you in the ballpark. Pun intended. Uh-huh. <laughs> I guess there's like other variations on this too, where I feel like the lines of code and commits thing is something that is like, I mean, hopefully more theoretical. Like I, I know I've, I've done it kind of like as a joke or, you know, just being like, okay, who's the top dog here? I feel like, measuring story points and stories can be like kind of a proxy for this as as well this like same idea which maybe is another one of the metrics on the back of your baseball card your developer baseball card in a weird way 
Yeah, but the thing is that also, even if we looked at, say, the metrics of how many story points a person has done, who's to say that that person was assigned all those stories because that person knows that code base very well and doesn't pair with anyone because he's a cowboy coder who likes to make sure that those features get shipped out. Do we know the kind of work that he's doing? Is he doing like real hot fixes and adding another if statement to the list of if statements? You don't really get that with story points either. It becomes like that baseball card where it's like, oh, Bobby has the commits and story points plus the test coverage and all, all of that kind of bit. I worked with a developer, too, that they were pretty great. They knew the code base very well. They're very productive. But they also had a skill that they were great at arbitrage of like looking at the stories that their team had pointed and knowing which stories their colleagues had collectively overestimated. So they would go for those stories, pick them up, crush it, and then be like, you know, I shipped a good chunk of stories and then you know they're like looked really good oh wow yeah that's pretty clever like for that person to know the Kobe's in and out enough to get the sweet sweet story point advantage i do want to say william thank you for that analogy because now i can compare myself to a baseball player i've never thought i'd see the day Stream <laughs> <laughs> come true gonna hit a home run with this one. Oh, hopefully we we do i think what i have done in the past though me personally in terms of looking at commits and lines of code i've used that number to determine a particular client developer's influence on the code base and how well they know the code base that number was just like i used it but it wasn't like i'm expecting or reducing someone's pay or like punishing them for the work that they did or did not do. It was just like, I didn't have any science behind them. We're like, oh, but you know, Bobby's done a lot of commits here. Let me see if I could talk to him about this particular piece of the code. And that leads me to some good findings. I mean, I don't have any scientific data to back it up, but I always thought like, oh, if someone has a lot of lines of code at the code base, they might know a thing or two. Whether that was really true or not, like it's different. Big old grain of salt, but I mean, yeah, yeah you know, it could be a clue for your investigation. I mean, I know if I'm looking at an open source repo and it's not clear who the maintainer is, sometimes (laughs) I'll go to that pulse tab and you can see it. Like they'll show you who put the most lines of code in, like the (laughs) most number of commits over the longest period of time. And you can see usually most open source repos, there's like one person who's very clearly at the top of that. And then a very long tail of other contributors. Yeah, I guess as a manager too, like if you're trying to like measure productivity, there's something that's a little bit more intangible that you might want to get at from all of these things like story points and lines of code and commits. Like you really want to know like what is the impact of the change that they're doing? Like what is the value that they're driving to the users and like how much engagement the features are getting and how useful are they and how little bugs and that's like a little bit harder to measure. Even more abstract, like how well is that person as a team player with the rest of the team? Like that doesn't get captured in code either. But you want to make sure that Bobby's like a good developer and is willing to help out when people are stuck on a problem. There's always a pleasant day when you get to pair with Bobby, for example, versus the amount of lines of code that a person does, but could be 
thrashing all over the place and making sure that his work gets done before another person, that kind of stuff. I mean, like if you're a team lead, you are probably, you're hopefully writing fewer lines of code and spending more time investing in your teammates. That can be sort of a false indicator. You see somebody whose metrics show that they've delivered very few story points or that they have spent a lot of time on just one story or whatever. And it could be that actually they are leader, maybe not even one that is formally recognized, but who is contributing so much in the code base or to the team by accelerating all of their teammates. Right. By like working through them and lifting them up and having like outsized impact. Yeah. A thing that I've seen too is like on the that like thread of like incentivizing individual performance versus team performance, people's bonus compensation, if they have individual bonuses with like really specific terms, it may incentivize them to act against the best interests of the team or what might lift up their teammates in favor of like being the rock star hero that gets things over the line i need monies so if it's individual baby i'm going for it (laughs) i guess is the idea right like what's the incentive of you sharing the bonus if it's individualized i guess is the question not that i would really do that but that's like the thought that i had in mind if it's a team bonus then you're more likely to work with the team together to get the most useful features out and customer interaction. Hopefully that, I'm not sure how we capture those metrics to determine what teams get what bonus. I mean, I'm sure it's like customer satisfaction, ratings and that kind of stuff. I'd be curious to hear any organizations that are doing team-based bonuses and what does that look like? What does that structure look like and how is it set up? Because it's a really interesting thing. I've only heard of the idea being individualized, which is can lead to like the story point arbitrage and lines of code committed and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I guess we shifted like some different awards or ceremonies that stride from being individual based to team based. And that's been kind of cool. Instead of one person getting a meal, everybody gets a meal. Yeah, exactly. The whole team gets a meal for doing great work with them strides. Yeah. Got to get up that BMI. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you gotta you gotta get that BMI, bro. Or the two pork chops. That's what you gotta do, bro. Get a greasy sloppy Joe cheeseburger on stride. Get that BMI up. Get the vaccine. <laughs> That's my plan. Peanut butter and jelly on your cheeseburger. That'll do it. Oh man, don't don't remind me. I need to go hit up that Burger Tom in the Bronx, bro. They definitely got that burger on deck. Oh my god, South Korean special. <laughs> oh the, yeah, the South Korean special too. Yeah, well, if you got a burger joint that does the peanut butter and jam, no. Yeah. Wait, well, they do that in the Bronx? There's a burger called, I forget what it's called, but there's a burger place in the Bronx called Burger Tom. And they have all sorts of wacky burgers. They have the peanut butter and bacon burger. They also have my personal favorite. It's called the Excalibur Burger, where it's a cheeseburger, but rather than burger buns, it's on two grilled cheeses. Guys, I know how to get my BMI up. I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want your child to be an orphan. <laughs> Yo, the Excaliburger, check it out. It's great. The last thing that I want to talk about really quick is a thing that we often do in, as engineers is A-B testing and using that to our advantage to determine which way or direction we want to release this feature by exposing our users with the A product or the B product and then figure out what's the best. Do y'all have any success stories with A-B testing? I like once... I had a super successful A-B test that I was very proud of because I defeated the designer. They they really wanted a sticky button in a modal. 
at the bottom of the screen, it was not working on different devices. Mm-hmm. I was like, look, we'll just put it on the top of the screen and then problem solved. <laughs> like it's not sticky or, you know, just sticky at the top. And then it's like not a problem. We did an A-B test and it like really performed very differently than they expected. And even I expected that they were right. I didn't think that I was right, but. Defeated the designer, bro. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Did you tell the designer that it was like totally broken on some devices? Because I feel like maybe you were stacking your numbers. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, yeah, they knew. They knew. But they were like, they they just wanted it that way. And they're like, oh, I don't care. It's not gonna make that big of a difference. And then I was like, look at this. People can't add the food to the cart. They can't buy anything. <laughs> So they just leave. <laughs> oh, boy. No, that'll do it. Oh, man. No, I imagine you use software to determine that people were not clicking the button when it was down below and unable to be seen versus when it was up top and ready to go. And I'm sure those metrics definitely help out at the end of the day. Bounce rate. This is an important metric. And you want to make sure people are going through the entire cycle in your product and A-B testing is the best way to or great way to do that. There's certain things that you might not want to A-B test. You can go kind of overboard if you're like addicted to A-B tests. A-B tests are expensive. Use them on things where, well, first of all, you need to have two cases that are worth testing against each other. And then you want to use that on things that are actually going to matter. Don't go A-B testing everything. Is that what you're saying? Just like all over the place or A-B tests. And then in the A, you do another A-B is <laughs> the whole alphabet just put yeah. all the letters in there <laughs> i think first of all you need enough users to see the interaction to be able to make some kind of a conclusion because if you throw up an a b test on like some super niche feature you could be waiting weeks to even get to like 30 plus users actually interacting mm-hmm. with it so i mean if it's relating to checkout if it's relating to like something that's very directly going to impact sales if you have a thing that's going to reduce abandoned shopping carts then like okay great a b test that but you don't need to a b test every pr thank god (laughs) there are other ways to validate your assumptions besides a b testing like actually measuring the outcomes over time or having some qualitative interview with a user like does this suck or is it good and they're like oh, it's good okay good maybe managers should try that with their managees is this guy terrible or is he okay so i'm gonna a b test getting the peanut butter and jam burger and see how much bmi i get there and then i'm gonna a b <laughs> test that with the excalibur burger and see which one gives me more bmi growth <laughs> And then the one that does, I'm just going to buy a whole lot more of those until I hit the 30. And then, you know, I'll get the vaccine. Yes, it's going to happen. I can also wait till May 1st. Or I can enjoy all the burgers I want. That's Dave. I don't know, man. It's a hard hard button to press. Which one? I don't know. I think I might have to go with the burgers. I feel like we need to like revisit this topic with a focus on making good choices with good metrics. I feel like we talked about some pretty gnarly ones. A hundred episodes later. Hello, welcome to the rabbit hole. I have type 2 diabetes from uh, eating too many cheeseburgers. Uh-oh. We'll Let's see. be real. You just wanted those cheeseburgers. You were going to find a metric to justify that anyway. <laughs> exactly. You know it. And y'all know me too well. Y'all know me too well. <laughs> Follow us now on Twitter at Radio Free Rabbit so we can keep the conversation going. Like what you hear? 
Give us a five-star review and help developers just like you find their way into the rabbit hole. And never miss an episode. Subscribe now however you listen to your favorite podcast. On behalf of our producer extraordinaire, William Jeffries, and my amazing co-host, Dave Anderson, and me, your host, Michael Nunez, thanks for listening to The Rabbit Hole.